The following audio is from Overland Park Community Church. More information about OPCC can be found online at overlandpark.cc. Welcome to OPCC. Welcome to those of you joining online. It's good for you to be here today. Good to see you. Um, just want to talk a little bit about the 70s. The 70s was a great de- decade. A lot of cool stuff happened in the 70s. Like, I mean, a lot of cool stuff. Um, <laughs> we got uh, Star Wars. Well, that's pretty cool, the 70s. Uh, just imagine what the world would be like without Star Wars, right? That came out of my decade. I came out of the 70s, amen? Come on, man. Uh, the Eagles, like if you like rock and roll, I mean, like great the classic rock and roll came out of the 70s. I think they were in the 70s. Seems like it. The Station Wagon. The Station Wagon ruled the day in the 70s. The minivan didn't come out till the 80s, and the minivan put a serious hurt on the station wagon. Like, if you had five kids in the 70s, you most likely had a station wagon. And station wagon, for those of you who don't know what they are, they're basically a minivan squashed and longer, right? And uh, they have... uh, the, the front seat is a bench seat, and then the next seat is a bench seat. And then behind that seat, like, there was just cargo area. But then the cargo area flipped up, and there were two seats that faced each other. They didn't face forward. It was really cool for a kid um, not, uh, like myself growing up in the 70s for me to be back there with my friends. <clears throat> and so my folks had one of these station wagons. I remember when they got it. it ours was one that looked like it was made out of wood. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and so a um, little story about uh, our station wagon that I remember, I mean like I remember it vividly. And so my mom always uh, took us to church, and it's so ironic, my mom happens to be here today. Welcome, mom. You're going to love this story. This is really a good story for you, Mom. It's a bad story. Uh, and my, uh, my in-laws are here as well, so welcome to them. But uh, So my, my mom always kept us in church uh, growing up. I had two brothers at the time. My youngest brother wasn't alive yet. I was probably about seven years old. My brothers were six and seven years older than me, so they were in their, their teenage years. And uh, we were, there was something happening at the church it was a special event. I don't know what was happening, uh, but my, my mom was taking us all, and a bunch of my brother's friends was going, okay? So that was weird. That was de- not normal for their friends to go. And my dad was going. My dad didn't always go to church with us growing up. He had to work a lot on Sundays, um, and, and so it was a big deal that my dad was going. This was a Sunday evening service, so it had to do with some kind of youth service or something. And so uh, on this particular day, what was odd about it is my mom was driving. And my mom never drove, like when my dad was going somewhere. But I don't know if she went and picked up a bunch of my brother's friends and then came back. But needless to say, the station wagon was full, okay? And so that thing was loaded down carrying people off to hear the gospel. And, And so it had these rolled up windows, like, unless you had money in the 70s, you didn't have any car with electric windows. You had the old crank kind. But the station wagon man in the back, 
it had an electric window. And so on the side of the dash to the left, there was this big, long silver button. You could push on it, and it would lower the back window down in the station wagon. And so since it was so loaded down, I was sitting um, on one of my brother's friend's lap. And so like this was like the perfect storm of all these things coming together. And one of my brother's friends that happened to come, his name was James Woods. And James Woods, there was two things that I understood from my brothers about James Woods. And he was the coolest guy at school for two reasons. One, he had hair down to here. And two, he could play the guitar. And so he was just the coolest guy ever. My brother Jeff, I can remember telling me how cool and how awesome James uh, and his brother Michael Woods were because they could play the guitar and everything. And, so, and they could sing. And so, uh, so I'm sitting on, like, this is not good for me because I'm seven. I'm kind of a, a, a make, you, make the family laugh type kid. Now I'm sitting on James's lap in the back of the station wagon that is loaded down, my mom driving, my dad in the passenger seat, kids, young, like teenagers everywhere outside of myself, and me wanting to fit in and be cool and make everybody laugh. And I was rolling there, man, when we were loading up in the back seat in the driveway, and people were getting in the car and everything. And so it was a good day, man. I had those guys back there fired up and laughing. I'm a little guy. And so uh, I'm sitting there and just feeling real spry and everything, and my mom proceeds to back out of the driveway once everybody is loaded, and um, I have my, because I'm sitting on his lap, I have my elbow out the window of the station wagon in the back, kind of playing it cool, and my mom begins to roll the window up, and I kind of, I just leave my elbow in the window, and it gets up to the top, and I'm like... Oh, mom, you dumb butt. And the car stopped. <laughs> my dad got out of the passenger seat. My dad was a big guy. He was like 6'4". He was big guy. He came around to the back of the station wagon with it fully loaded. Everybody's eyes glued on him. He opened the back of the station wagon. He reached in and grabbed me by my hair and proceeded to take me around to the front and set me down in the middle of the front seat between him and my mother. I sat down and he said, don't you ever talk to your mother that way again. And I never did. <laughs> <laughs> so I was humiliated, man. I went from being on top of the world to having everybody think I was the coolest kid ever to being feeling like, oh my gosh, I, like I, it was awful. Like the day just, it was, it just went awful right then. And I can remember that day like it was yesterday. So why would you start um, the sermon with that story? Well, so we're in Malachi chapter two today. And before we get there, I want to read to you out of Nehemiah chapter 3, or chapter 13, I'm sorry. So the reason I'm doing that is Nehemiah, Nehemiah started, he, he was a, a, a civilian leader who went back to build the walls around the nation of Jerusalem. Remember, they were exiled in Babylon, and so he was the king's cupbearer in Babylon, and he was allowed to go back and reconstruct the walls uh, around Jerusalem. And so he comes, most likely, most scholars believe, right after Malachi. Malachi had been prophesying. They're dealing with the same types of problems, okay? They're trying to get the people focused on following the Lord and reinstituting 
what it meant to be uh, to practice Judaism. And so, uh, so Nehemiah goes back and he rebuilds the city walls. Then he has to go back to Babylon and he makes another journey back. And when he comes back to, on the second journey, they have the temple has been already rebuilt. The walls have been constructed, but there's some bad stuff going on. We learned last week the priests were, man, they were really off, like the way they were leading the people. And we're going to see a little bit more of that today. But they were they were marrying foreign people, and they were not supposed to do that. They were marrying outside of uh, Judaism. And so they weren't, it was okay to be outside of Judaism and come in as a foreigner and become like a practicing Jew. That was tolerated. But that's not what they were doing. What they were doing is they were going outside of Ju- Judaism and they were marrying foreign women who were practicing pagan religion. And so Nehemiah shows up in the town, and this is what it says in in, uh, Nehemiah chapter 13, verse 23, to kind of set the context of what we're going to study in Malachi. It says, moreover, in those days I saw men of Judah who had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. And half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod or the language of the other peoples and did not know how to speak the language of Judah. Now, why is that important? Because this is an oral society, not a written society. Things are passed down orally, and so the language of Judah would be the language of God. They couldn't hear the stories of God. Things were getting polluted. They were getting watered down, and people were not following God. They didn't know the language of God. And so Nehemiah says, I rebuked them, and I called curses down on them, and I beat some of the men, and I pulled out their hair. And that reminds me of that story of mine. Here's a guy, like, he comes and he pulls out their hair and he says, I made them take an oath in God's name and said, you are not to give your daughters in marriage to their sons, nor are you to take their daughters in marriage for your sons or for yourselves. Was it not because of marriages like these that Solomon, king of Israel, sinned among the many nations? There was no king like him. He was loved by his God and God made him king over all Israel. But even he was led into sin by foreign women. Must we hear now that you do are doing all this terrible wickedness and are being unfaithful to our God by marrying foreign women? And one of the sons of Joiada, son of Eliashib, the high priest, was son-in-law to Sanballat, the Horonite, and I drove him away from me. Remember them, my God, because they defiled the priestly office and the covenant of the priesthood and of the Levites. And so like Nehemiah, man, he was a bad dude and he was serious about following the Lord. Just imagine if you were like walking in disobedience in your marriage or something and I showed up to your house and came in and grabbed you by the hair and just started giving you a big chewing out. That's what happened. Like Nehemiah literally did that. And so I was just thinking to myself, man, if, if, we had a, if we had somebody who would do that for us, it would teach us a lesson before we really screw up our lives and teach us how to live the proper way, if we had somebody that we could rely on in that way. So now we go back to Malachi chapter 2, and we're going to pick up where we left off last week and, and deal with a little bit of this priestly problem. But before we do that, I want to share an important verse that I quoted last week and give you the first takeaway. And here it is. Believers are priests of God. Okay, In the Old Testament, the Levites were priests of God. They were selected 
and they were the priests of God. In the New Testament, all believers are priests of God. That's why I'm not called a priest, I'm called a pastor. A pastor, what does he do? He equips the saints for the ministry of the work of Christ, of the kingdom. And so we are all priests of God, and my primary responsibility is to function as a priest of God and be an example to you of what you should do as a priest of God. Okay, so we don't just have one priest of God. And this is what Peter says. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. All believers are priests of God. And so when we get to Malachi chapter 2, what we have in the first section is God, through the prophet Malachi, he condemns the evil practices of the priests, and then he gives what the priest should be doing. And then we go in following that, and he talks about this corruption of marriage and divorce and how God is not pleased with it. And so I'm going to take you through all of that and teach you something that I think um, has the power to change your life. And so we start in Malachi chapter 2, verses 1 through 16. Now follow along with me because I'm going to put all this together. And keep in mind... As you read this, the timeless application as we travel from the Old Testament to the New Testament, this would apply to you as a priest of God. These are the expectations for your life. And now you priest, this warning is for you. If you do not listen and if you do not resolve to honor my name, says the Lord Almighty, I will send a curse on you and I will curse your blessings. Yes, I have already cursed them because you have not resolved to honor me. Because of you, I will rebuke your descendants. I will smear on your faces the dung from your festival sacrifices, and you will be carried off with it. Now, what is that about? Well, when they would actually physically sacrifice an animal, the entrails were to be taken out, and they were to be taken outside the camp and burned. And God is saying, if you don't shape up and start honoring me, I will take the very thing that you carry outside of the camp and burn it, shove it on your face in an act of humiliation, and you will be carried outside of the camp as well. And you will know that I have sent you this warning so that my covenant with Levi may continue. <clears throat> so there's the warning, says the Lord Almighty. And here, then he talks about the covenant with Levi, who is the first of the priest. And he says, my covenant was with him, a covenant of life and peace. I gave them to him. This called for reverence, and he revered me and stood in awe of my name. True instruction was on his mouth, and nothing false was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness and turned many from sin. For the lips of a priest ought to preserve knowledge, because he is the messenger of the Lord Almighty, and people seek instruction from his mouth. But you have turned from the way, and by your teaching have caused many to stumble, and you have violated the covenant with Levi, says the Lord Almighty. So I have caused you to be despised and humiliated before all the people, because you have not followed my ways, but have shown partiality in matters of the law. And so the, the priest had this, like their expectation was is that they would teach the people 
the truth of the Word of God and that they would be uncompromising in their delivery. And what these guys were doing is they were compromising. And they were certainly compromising. When we learned, learned last week, they were offering lame sacrifices. And they would do this especially to those who were wealthy. And so if there was wealthy people among the people they were ministering to, they got special privileges. And the, uh, the writer of the epistle of James, um, he tells us that we are to not show partiality among people. We don't treat a rich person different than we do a poor person. We teach them all the same. And that means that when you're going through the word of God, you don't excuse people's behavior, whether they have a ton of money, a ton of cash, or they don't have anything, they get the same message, right? And that means so that if a wealthy person, they can come under the sound teaching of the gospel, it can fall on their lives and set them free. And the same could happen from a homeless man. A homeless man. I remember the first time I preached at a homeless ministry, I had my message all together and everything, and <clears throat> I, was, I was like in college, and, and I, I walked in and had the sermon already, and man, I was just so worked up, and I heard some of the guys talking to some of the other, my, my fellow students and, and the professor that took us down there, and, and one, they said, well, God had never done anything for me, and God this, and this was really, and man, I just scrapped that sermon, and my whole sermon to those poor people is that God has done everything for you. And I laid it down, man. I mean, I was preaching at them homeless people. I wasn't telling them, hey, man, God loves you and he's going to care about you if you just do. I just said, man, you need to understand that you are desperately wicked and hopeless in your sins. And if you do not repent from your sin, I don't care if you ever have a dime on this side of eternity, you will spend eternity in hell. And I remember one old homeless man, man, the longer I preached, the further he covered his head up under his coat. And I was like, man, they needed to hear the truth of the word because they were so far off from, from thinking correctly theologically about who God is. And then it was, it was amazing because after that, I had so many guys come up to me and say, man, that's exactly what I needed to hear. Man, that inspired me and, and fired me up. And, and so I could see that, that the, the Lord, man, he, he, he doesn't want us showing par partiality. And so as priests of God, we've got to remember that as we're ministering to our friends and family. We don't show partiality. We teach the truth, and we don't compromise in any way, shape, or form. And so that what we learn from this is, is, is I don't want to focus on the curse side. We can see that. We can see that God says, man, I will remove the blessing from your life if you don't start to honor me. And he says, this is what I expect from you. And, and here's the second takeaway. Priests of God pull in one direction. So here we are. I've established, first of all, we're all priests of God if we know the Lord. All right? And as priests of God, we pull in one direction. What are they? We see them clearly here in verses 5 through 7. Reverence and awe. A priest of God is in reverence and awe. Again, I talked about this last week. Man, we just like our, we look to God, we're just in, we revere him. We have a holy fear of him. We're, we're in awe of him. We respect him. We love him. And we're blown away by his grandeur. True instruction of the word. Okay? Not watered down instruction of the word. You, you, if the Lord calls you out of this ministry and you have to move and relocate, the first thing you should be looking for in a church is not the children's ministry, the music ministry. It is true instruction of the word. Like that's what you got to look for is, man, where are they, they going to teach me the truth of the word? Nothing false falling from their lips. 
That's what is expected of a priest. Walk with God in peace and uprightness. What does that mean? It means that I'm at peace with God. I'm not at war with God. I'm not functioning like an enemy of his. I'm, I'm, I'm functioning as a citizen in the kingdom, and I'm doing it in such a way that it's upright. What does that mean? It's, I enjoy it. It's not a burden to me. I enjoy walking with God that way. And, and then a messenger of the Lord, um, people are, wait, 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 wait. Turn people from sin. That was the next one. And so people are turned from sin because of our, our service. And then we are messengers of the Lord where people seek instruction. So we're so in tune with God and the truth of his word and that we uh, don't show favoritism to people. We treat everybody the same way. We're allowing the truth of God to control us. And, and, and we're doing it in such a way as that people are seeking out godly instruction from us. That, my friends is a disciple maker. That's what it means to make disciples. Jesus said, go ye therefore and make disciples of all nations and baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit and teach them everything that I have taught you. And so that is a call to who? It is a call to the entire church. The entire church. You are to be making disciples. And so that's why our church is so committed to discipleship is because we believe that the problem in America is the church has quit making disciples and started making consumers. And so there are not a pr enough priests of God out there getting their hands dirty in the ministry, delivering the truth of God's word, and people have, having enough resource to seek counsel about the kingdom of God in their lives. And so like as we set people free and release them to make disciples, we see the kingdom of God moving forward. And so priests of God pull in one direction, okay? And the direction is given to us there in verses 5 through 7. Here's the third takeaway. The Lord desires oneness. Now, in Malachi chapter 2, this is where we have this teaching all about divorce, okay? There's so much um, teaching here about divorce um, in Malachi. And so it's easy to look in there and say, man, like this is, like the Lord, like he even says in verse, I think it's 16, that the Lord hates divorce. Um, and, and so... We look at that and go, well, this, this thing is all about marriage, okay? And so as we talk about that, let me, let me just say this. There's some of you here are divorced, and you've been remarried. And you're like, oh, geez, man, whoa, the pastor is really giving it to me. First of all, what I would say to you is that, like, you can't do anything about your past, but you can do everything about your future. Your future lies ahead of you. And so what you have to do is this, this sermon is not about, oh, man, you've been divorced in the past. Like, divorce is not the unforgivable sin. But you need to understand clearly where, what happens when, when divorce happens in your life. And so, like, you just look down and, and don't beat yourself up over, your, over the past. But you certainly need to look forward and go, man, what do I need to be doing if you remarried? Certainly, in, in order for this marriage to be healthy and to maintain what God's desire for it. And God shows us. And, and it is oneness, Okay. And so look at this in verse 10. So he goes from this whole priest thing to what a priest should be doing, what they were not doing, and then he goes right into this. Do we not all have one father? Did not one God create us? Why do we profane the covenant of our ancestors by being unfaithful to one another? Okay? And so where does God desire oneness everywhere. That's why America is in such trouble right now. We have no oneness. 
You say, how did we get here? We got here with the oneness being attacked first and foremost on God. That's why we are so morally bankrupt right now. That's why we call evil good and good evil, is the oneness with God has been crushed in our nation. And that doesn't mean it's crushed everywhere. It's not crushed in me, and I'm an American, I'm I'm patriotic, but nationally crushed. It's not like it used to be. And so we are to have oneness with God. And, And because we don't have oneness with God, the second place we're to have oneness is with our spouses. And so how do you destroy a nation? You destroy a divine institution of marriage. And how do you destroy a divine institution of marriage? Mess up the oneness in the marriage. When you mess up the oneness in the marriage, you eventually will crush the marriage and you will cripple the offspring that are to come out of that marriage. And you set them back. And eventually it spills over into the culture and that's how we got where we're at today. And so we are to have oneness with God, with the Lord Jesus Christ. We are to have oneness with our spouses. We are to have oneness with our children. It's not just oneness with my spouse. I'm to have oneness with my kids. And so I'm to be able to walk in the oneness of God with my children. But not only that, my children are to have oneness with me as their parent. Until they leave their mother and father and cleave to their spouse, then they are to have oneness with me as their father. They are to have oneness with their mother. But upon marriage, then they are now to have oneness with this other person, and a new family is created and ordained of the Lord. Um, And then we are to have oneness with our spiritual brothers and sisters in Christ. And so we are to have oneness with our spiritual family. And so we walk in oneness. Now, it's hard to get people to commit to things. It's hard to get people to commit to a church for an extended period of time. And we find here at our church, the greater we lean in to you about walking in your obedience to the Lord, one of two things will happen, is you will accept the leaning in and you will get set on fire and start making disciples for the Lord or you will decide this is not the church for you. And why have you decided that? Because you don't want to be one with the gospel. And that's what happens. And so the oneness is consistently attacked within all of our relationships. And so the enemy's strategy is to focus on this. It's, it's like, like you can read from Genesis to Revelation and see this all throughout the Bible. The first couple are placed in a, a state of, uh, of paradise, in an environment of paradise, and the enemy comes and he deceives them. And they are not ashamed that they're walking around naked, but upon their, uh, their, 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 their disobedience and, and to God and rebellion and they sin, they immediately are made aware of their nakedness and they feel shame and they are, their oneness is, is divided. Now, they're not, now not only are, is their oneness divided, the husband is blaming the wife, the wife is blaming God because he created this thing that made him, and it's the whole thing, the whole oneness thing is just blown up. And then it's not long before we find that the offspring, one of them kills his brother because oneness was infringed upon. And so this is happening in our culture, and this is happening in your home, and this is so vitally important for you, because as priests of God, what we are to do is pull as one in one direction to protect and live in oneness, okay? And so to guard oneness, we must function as one, not two. Now, this is easier said than done, 
And Abby and I, like, here's the deal, man. We have a great marriage. Like, we love each other. And by great marriage, I don't mean that it's perfect, okay? By great marriage, I don't mean that I don't frustrate the living daylights out of her and she doesn't frustrate the living daylights out of me. Like, we do. But we know that we're supposed to walk in oneness. And so we, we, we do battle against the enemy around that. We, we try to recognize when he is attacking our oneness. And we, like one of my prayers that I have prayed consistently for us on a daily basis is I ask the Lord, the first person I pray for every day is Abby. I pray for my bride, that he would fall upon her and help her to walk in the fullness of his spirit. And that, Lord, you would help us to walk out our oneness that we would be one emotionally, we'd be one spiritually, we would be one physically, Lord, sexually, we would be one. We would be one in every area of our lives. As we parent our children, we would be one. As we lead people before you, we would be one. And I say, Lord, help me to live out that oneness and help her to live out that oneness. Because I know the enemy is always going to attack that oneness. He's always going to be coming at that. And he's always going to be operating within the realm of me and how my fallen nature desires sometime to fall back and, and please myself rather than Jesus. And I have to recognize, is, is, am I trying to live out oneness here or am I trying to live out two-ness? You see, you cannot be one as you, if you function as two. And so, for instance, what you have to understand is that as you're functioning within your marriage um, or with, as, a, as a child to a parent or, or a spiritual family, as you're functioning in all these relationships, you have to see yourself as one, not two. And so like when, when your, your spouse comes to you and says something that, you know, like maybe emotionally they're not getting their needs met, like, my, like the first reaction is that you don't, Here's the deal. Let me just be, can I just be authentic today? You appreciate that, bro? I would, I would cross, climb over a mountain on a snowy day when I was 25 to give Abby a kiss. And now, like, I don't even think about it. And so, like, I have to, sometimes even when I do think about it, like, for me, like, just being honest as a man, it's just, it's not as important to me as it was then. But to her, it's important. And so if I'm going to be in oneness, I have to figure out ways how to overcome my oversight in that and be intentional and make sure that I do hug her. Make sure that I do kiss her. Make sure that I do tell her that I love her. Because I will never have any problems telling her on the tunis side. We will never have any difficult letting it out of our, our lungs and our mouth how we feel about maybe what they did in a certain situation. But we will always struggle to press in and say, man, this is how I feel about you. Because why? Why is it so difficult for us? Because we are living on this side of the fall. We are living in a place that is still cursed. And though spiritually we've been lifted above the curse until physically we are resurrected and our souls and our bodies are reunited, we will not be able to perfectly live that out. And so we will struggle in tension. And we must always rely on the Holy Spirit to overcome the temptation and listen to the Lord so that we can walk out the oneness. And so if I'm not thinking like one, I will act like two. 
If I'm not thinking about how I'm uh, impacting my parents, I'm, I'm just thinking about my life, then I won't realize the consequences of my behavior, how they will impact the oneness that I have with my father or my mother. And so like, this is so vitally important for us to always be in thought of going, man, every decision that I make, every word that I say, uh, the things that I do, the schedule that I keep, it, it impacts my oneness. And, and one of the things that helps me more than anything is to realize that when I'm loving my wife the way Jesus loves the church, I'm actually loving myself. And when I'm not, I'm hurting myself because I'm one with her. We are one. And so the Lord sees us as one. And so like when we walk through this, we go, man, we got to guard this because the enemy, his strategy is always to come against that and attack that in every way, shape, and form. And so since the enemy's strategy is to come against that, what does the Lord do? He warns his people. And he says this, living like a foreigner inside the city of transformation is dumb. It's just dumb. I said, what is the city of transformation? Well, we learned in Zechariah that God said when Jesus came, it was a prophecy of the coming of the Messiah, that Jerusalem would be transformed into a city of truth. And we know truth always brings transformation. The truth will set you free. And so when we become followers of Jesus, we move inside the city of transformation. So the, here's where the devil has really tripped up the church, is that he's made Christianity about a one-time transformation. You get saved and you're baptized. You've been transformed into the image of Christ. That's not what the New Testament teaches. The New Testament says that we are to be renewed daily in our thinking, to take on the mind of Christ, to take up our cross daily and follow Jesus. And so I am to live inside of a city of transformation. I'm transformed as I am recreated in the image of Christ and spiritually redeemed and, and Christ is resurrected in me and I was once dead and now I'm alive and Christ is in me living. And so now I'm, I'm alive spiritually and I'm, I'm transformed in that capacity and capable of living inside the city of transformation. And as each day goes by, I, sh I should be experiencing greater and greater transformation. Another way to say this is, is sanctification or spiritual growth. If you are not growing and being transformed in Christ, you are walking in disobedience. There's no way around it. Like we see it, like we see all of the disciples, man, they just kept growing. And so the, the, the will of the Lord for us is that we offer sacrifices daily to the Lord. And so we might say, well, why don't we offer the sacrifices of the lambs and, and, and the different um, meal offerings and, and, that they off, offered in the Old Testament? It's because we are the offering. And that's why they had daily sacrifices, to remind them of their need, of their dependence upon Christ. And so we are living sacrifices, and we die to ourselves on a daily basis, and we consistently go through the process of transformation. We live out our oneness, and the people around us look at us, and they go, man, the marriage over there is a lot different than the marriage over here. And the problem in the church today is that people look inside of the church and see the marriages, and there's no difference than the marriages on the outside of the church. And Why? It's because we're not living as one. We're living as two. And, and so that's not God's desire for us. And so like, whenever we see this, he, he, he says it this way, and this is the last portion of the scripture. He says, Judah has been unfaithful. 
A detestable thing has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. Judah has desecrated the sanctuary the Lord loves by marrying women who worship a foreign god. As for the man who does this, whoever he may be, may the Lord remove him from the tents of Jacob, even though he brings an offering to the Lord Almighty. Another thing you do, you flood the Lord's altar with tears, you weep and wail because he no longer looks with favor on your offerings or accepts them with pleasure from your hands. And you ask why? It is because the Lord is the witness between you and the wife of your youth. You have been unfaithful to her, though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. Has not the one God made you? You belong to him in body and spirit. And what does the one God seek? Godly offspring. So be on your guard and do not be unfaithful to the wife of your youth. The man who hates and divorces his wife, says the Lord, the God of Israel, does violence to the one he should protect, says the Lord Almighty. So be on your guard and do not be unfaithful. And so another translation would read verse 16 and say, I, he would say, I hate divorce, says the Lord God of Israel, because the man who divorces his wife covers his garment with violence. It's a very difficult passage of Scripture to interpret, but we, we can take away here very clearly that God is displeased with us. And so the first thing he does, or he's displeased when divorce happens, because it's an attack upon the oneness that he expects. Just think of all of the places that we see oneness. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, the three distinct personalities of the Trinity are one God. In marriage, we see God um, in the center of it, and a man and a husband, they represent the triune God. God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, and God the Son. And they come together, and they unify, and they become one. And like the two, out of the two, what happens? One child, okay? And so we see that even God, like the godly offspring, is this is how God decided that he wanted souls to come in to the planet is through a family. And so like when we look at this, what God is teaching us is that foreign influence is foolish, okay? And so like Paul calls this being unequally yoked, and I'm sure you've probably heard that. And so, it, and, and so what does that mean? Because here's what we've, here, here again, because a lot of us as believers go, uh-huh, amen, you should not marry an unbeliever. But he also says, if you have, like stay with them, and by your life and how you live, they hopefully will come into the kingdom as well. But it doesn't let us off as believers. Like you can, you can equally yoke with another believer and be married five years and decide in five years to be unequal. What does unequally yoked mean? To be equally yoked means we're pulling in the same direction. What direction should we pull? One direction, the direction of the peace, priest. The objective standard of God's word is what drives us. That's what I believe is at the center of what makes my marriage so incredible. Like, I, I love this woman. I didn't think I could love her more than I did, but I do. And I can tell you this. I don't think that if we had the Lord at the center of our marriage, I don't think we'd be married today. The only thing that has allowed us to travel down this road is that we are committed as priests of God to pull in one direction and to be equally yoked. And we also understand the tendencies that we will sometimes get unequal. 
And that it's easy for the enemy to trip us up and try to get us unequally yoked and leading in a different direction. And so we always come back to the center of what does the word of God say for us? How should we be living out as a godly husband and wife? What does it look for us look like for us to be married as a couple and both be followers of Jesus? She's not only my bride, she's my sister in Christ. Okay, And so that's how we achieve oneness. And as we walk that out, if we're not careful, God says, like, if you get foreign influence into this relationship, it's going to trip you up. And so he has a warning against marriage, but also we are to walk it out and must stay equally yoked. And so when your wife has needs and she's asking for things from you and you don't meet those needs, you have to go, whoa, am I being unequal here? Or am I being equally yoked to my wife right now? When my husband has needs and I'm not walking out in uh, those needs, I don't have a husband, by the way, but you understand what I'm saying. If I'm not, I can, I can get un, unequally yoked with him, okay? And so, like, that's why Paul says, the wife doesn't belong to herself. She belongs to the husband. Neither does the husband belong to himself. He belongs to the wife. And so we are one. And we have to function as one. And we have to constantly see that and see and be reminded of, Am I messing up the unequalness of my yoke right now? You don't just get to say as a believer, I yoked up equally several years ago, so I'm good. No, you stay yoked. Because when you got a team of oxen pulling in one direction, you can get some work done. But if you get unequally yoked with those oxen and one starts to pull this way and one starts to pull that way, you're not making up any ground. And it can happen. And so, like, you got to protect that. you got to guard it. you got to look for ways that you can ensure that the enemy is not getting a foothold in your relationships. And so this is why the passage teaches that God's uh, displeased with the divorce. Here it is. The priest divorced from the word, and the people started divorcing each other. And so, like, there's a separation from the truth of God. And when you try to live this way, and you say, well, I can figure this out. Like God is saying specifically, I hate this. I hate this kind of lifestyle. And verses 12 through 15 show us. They teach specifically that you cannot justify disobedience. Look at verse 12. He says, as for the man who does this, whoever he may be, may the Lord remove him from the tents of Judah, even though he brings an offering to the Lord Almighty. Then he says, you flood the Lord, Lord's altar with tears. You weep and well because he no longer looks with favor on your offerings or accepts them with pleasure from your hands. And you ask, why? It is because the Lord has witnessed between you and the wife of your youth. You have been unfaithful to her, though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. That doesn't just mean that you've been unfaithful in like w- walking in adultery. Like you can be unfaithful to your wife in a number of different ways. Remember in the New Testament, everything is elevated. Jesus said, they said, man, if you do this, you commit adultery. And Jesus said, I say, if you think it in your heart. So how much more if we're not walking in the oneness, then we're being unfaithful to each other. And we need to hear that as believers. We need to hear that it's just not sexual infidelity where we can be unfaithful to our spouses. We could be unfaithful in everything and how we manage our schedules and everything. And man, that's, oof, Right? That hits us, but we need to be hit, and that's why the Lord uses Malachi to say this. Is he's trying to look, bring us back in and say, man, I want my favor to fall on your life. And so when you try to live this way, there's fa- there are consequences, and the consequences say there's no favor, and the apostle Peter says it this way. Listen to what he says 
in the New Testament, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. You say, well, man, it doesn't seem like the Lord ever answers my prayers. He doesn't hear me. I don't hear anything. You might take a look at your marriage covenant. It could be hindering your prayers being answered from God simply by your unequally being yoked with your wife and how you're treating them. And so, like, oneness is important for our communication with the Father because we are one with each other, and it impacts our vertical relationship, one with the Father. And so this spills out into every relationship with our children, uh, children to parents, um, that, that, that with each other in the kingdom, brothers and sisters in Christ. And so I don't want to hinder my prayer or favor of, uh, the favor of God following on me. And so that brings us to the big idea. Be one. Be one. One with my spouse. One with my children. One with my parents. And one with my spiritual family. So as the guys come and we prepare to take communion, let me leave you with this thought. This is a strong word today. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice, they listen, and they follow me. The Holy Spirit's role when he sees us walking in disobedience, when he sees us getting out, like, like when, when, he, when he sees us veering off and we start getting unequally yoked, the Holy Spirit's role is to grab us by our spiritual hair and humble us when we are living like foreigners in the city of transformation. And our role is to listen so that we don't live like dumb butts. That's the word of the Lord. Like, that's what he does. He will speak to you. Like, you don't need me to come to your house and do what Nehemiah did and grab you by the hair. Because the Holy Spirit will do it. And if you will listen, he'll get a hold of you and say, well, what are you thinking? And it will change you. And that's the, that's the beauty of walking in oneness with the Lord and oneness with the people around you is that we can listen to the Lord and we can live the abundant life. So if anybody asks you what you learned about this week at church, you tell them, I learned how not to be a dumb butt. Thank you for listening to audio from Overland Park Community Church in Overland Park, Kansas. For more information, visit us online at overlandpark.cc.